0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, doing a series that basically is designed, or the goal of which is to encourage you to be reading your Bible, all of your Bible, including the Old Testament. And uh, I've talked about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the light of some advice to cut the Old Testament adrift and and not really deal with it as New Testament believers, I want to suggest to you that that's uh, mistaken, it's not a good idea, might be well motivated, but it's not the right thing to do. That The Bible is God's story from start to finish. And if you try and pick up the story in Act 4, having not heard or been part of Act 1, 2, and 3, then much of it will go completely over your head. When, people, you, know, when you talk to people about reading the Old Testament, one of the reasons they say, oh, well, I don't read it is because well, it's the law, and it's irrelevant to us New Testament believers. It's a lot of rules for ancient people that really don't concern me at all. So, over the last few weeks, I've been thinking about that kind of and how to respond to that sort of statement. Um, when it comes to the law, the New Testament can be somewhat confusing. There are statements that are seemingly contradictory or at the very least perplexing as it relates to the law, the Old Testament law. At times, the New Testament seems quite negative speaking about the Old Testament law. For example, Paul speaks about being free from the law in Galatians 5. He speaks about being dead to the law in Romans 7. And there are numerous other passages which talk about us as New Testament believers not being under the law. But there are equally other portions that seem quite positive in their regard for the law. For example, in Matthew 5:17, Jesus said, don't suppose I came to do away with the law and the prophets. Now, you have to realize that he said, don't suppose that I'm going to do that because people were. People were seeing how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees over the food laws and the Sabbath laws, and they came to the conclusion that he was doing away with the law. So he starts off, don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. I like RT France's paraphrase of that passage, which he puts this way, Don't suppose that I came to undermine the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures, and in particular the law of Moses. I did not come to set them aside, but to bring into reality that to which they pointed forward. I tell you truly, the law, down to its smallest details, is as permanent as the heavens and the earth and will never lose its significance. On the contrary, all that it points forward to will in fact become a reality and is doing so through my ministry." Romans chapter 3, verse 31, seems to view the law very positively. Do we then, Paul says, overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 4, so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You think, oh dear, this is confusing. Some negative, some positive. Is the law good or bad? Well, just in my study, I'm wondering that it's one of those issues where we face somewhat of a, spir- a scriptural tension, a bit like a tightrope that's held taunt from both ends in order for it to function properly. For those of you who you know, have studied quantum physics, you know to ask the question, is light a particle or a wave, is to get the answer yes. Similarly, on this issue, to ask, is the law good or bad, is probably to get the answer Yes. Now, I know that that's hard to understand and accept. We tend to think in binary terms, either or. But as N.T. Wright comments, as far as interpreting Scripture goes, watertight consistency is the province of small minds. And we have to recognize that the Scripture says both things. Martin Luther thought the apostle Paul was against the law. John Calvin, his compatriot, thought Paul was for the law. Now, if giants of this ilk can't agree, what hope have we got to try and work it out? I suspect if we were to interview a group of Christians and ask them about the Old Testament law, a good proportion of them would answer along the lines of, in the Old Testament, salvation came from obeying the law, whereas in the New Testament, it is by grace. We are not under law, but under grace. Therefore, the Old Testament, if it isn't Uh, irrelevant, it's close to being irrelevant. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Now I've said this a few times over the last few weeks and I want to reiterate it a bit, but I think that's completely mistaken. I think it's an inadequate understanding of how God deals with salvation and how God moved even under Old Testament law. In the Old Testament, as in the New, when it comes to salvation, God takes the initiative of grace and then calls people to a faith and obedient response. Now bear with me, I'm going to say this about 10 different ways, and I hope you'll get it. But in the book of Exodus, there are 18 chapters of a narrative describing God's gracious dealings in the redemption of his own people before a law is given. So God is graciously acting, and after he has graciously acted comes the law. What God did precedes what God demands. Before God became the lawgiver to Israel, he first gave himself to them as redeemer. I've said this before, I'm sure you would have forgotten, but the indicative always comes before the imperative The indicative is what God does, and because of what God does, what he asks us to do. You never get imperative and indicative. It's always indicative first. What God does, and then out of what God does, a grateful, obedient response. So the law was given in the context of an already established redemptive relationship. When God gives the law at at Mount Sinai, in Exodus 20, verse 1-2, it says, God spoke all these words, I am God, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a life of slavery, and then it's therefore. And you get the commandments, you get then the imperatives. Redeeming, liberating grace comes before law is given. Now this will be a surprise to some of you, but the law was never given and intended to be a ladder of merit that the people had to climb to get into God's good books. When we say in the Old Testament salvation was by law, it's not right, that's not true. Salvation was by grace. The law was an obedient way to live. God never gave the law as a ladder of merit to be climbed. Grace redeems first, then the law is proclaimed to those who are already a redeemed, rescued people so they can have a new way to live. So grace shadows and shelters them as they set their feet on the road of obedient pilgrimage. Obedience is the fruit, the proof, and the sustenance of a relationship with a God you already know. So law is the lifestyle of those already redeemed. The giving of the law to Israel was not a new bondage, but a charter for a free people. As I say, it was never given intended that they work hard to procure salvation. It was given as guidance for responding to salvation already wrought. So obedience always flows from grace. It doesn't buy it. And it's true in the Old Testament. People of Israel regarded the law as a gift of grace. They delighted in it. Now, such delight is hard to imagine if they believed it was a list of rules that they had to keep in order to be right with God. You can see the delight that they had in the law in so many passages. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the law is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The statutes of the Lord, the, the fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. This, This is the psalmist delighting in the law. I cannot imagine someone delighting in a whole list of rules that they have to obey, knowing they can't, to get into God's books. They didn't see it that way. In Psalm 119, David says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, in the New Testament, Paul speaks of the law as being good, just, righteous and holy. You can find that in Romans chapter 7. And I've said this before, but who do you know that is good, just, righteous, and holy? Of course, the answer is Yahweh. The law was given and was a perpetual replica of the divine nature. It reflected his image. And obeying the law, this redeemed people were designed to become more and more and more like him. And you know, even in the Old Testament, when Israel failed and fell short of the law's requirements, there was in the law provision for the failure as a result of their sins. There was the possibility of repentance. There was the sacrifices where they could be uh, made right and and the right standing could be restored. The law wasn't this daunting thing that Israel looked at, thought, how on earth are we going to do this? They were a redeemed people who were given a charter in terms of, now you've been redeemed, this is the grateful response of faith. Grace and faith are not simply or exclusively New Testament realities. People have always been made right with God by faith as a result of grace. Look, Read Romans chapter, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter eleven. Sometime it just it starts off by faith. Abel by faith. Noah by faith. Abraham by faith. Moses. God reaches out in grace. By faith they respond. The Mosaic covenant didn't change that. It wasn't suddenly that inexplicably God did away with grace and faith that that, that Abraham knew and instituted a ladder of good works in order to be saved. To use the law as a means of earning God's favor, which in fact is what ultimately Israel tried to do, was something that the law itself opposed. Listen to Romans chapter nine. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it, that is righteousness through faith. But Israel who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. You get it by faith. It's not based on works. But they tried to get it as if it were based on works. The law itself said it's by faith. Now, I know that over time Israel misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied the law, turning it both into a charter of racial racial privilege and also a legalistic means by which people could be right with God, but it was never intended to be that. Andrew Ollerton in his book says, the law was never intended as a DIY rescue plan or a self-help guide. It was a gift to a chosen nation that had been delivered from slavery. They had been set free and the law was given to help them live free. So rather than naively rejecting the Old Testament by saying, it's all about law and we're under grace, it doesn't apply to us, I think we need to look a little deeper and see if we can't see something of God's heart in the giving of the law. You might remember Chris Wright saying the more you read the Old Testament, the more you see the heart of Jesus. And it's true. Now, sometimes scholars divide the law, the Old Testament law, into different categories. They they divide it into ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. Now, that can be helpful for the purpose of analysis, but that's a human construct. The Bible itself doesn't put the law in those categories. And in truth, like most categories that we impose on reality, they aren't as clear as we would like them to be and actually blur at the edges and significantly overlap. But with that awareness, let's look at those categories because it is quite a helpful way of seeing it. So there are some laws in the Old Testament that we would say are ceremonial laws. These laws refer to and relate to instructions that have to do with people maintaining, not establishing, but maintaining right standing with God and having correct and clear boundary markers for who are the people of God and who are not. So these laws have to do with the various types of sacrifice, with the temple procedures, with priestly instructions, and laws that deal with uncleanness of various types. They are also laws that have to do with establishing clear and decisive boundary markers for whether you are in the people of God or not. So these laws delineate the community, who's in, who's not. Things like circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, feasts and food laws. Now, when we come to the New Testament it's clear that the ceremonial laws all pointed forward and were fulfilled in Jesus. That's why Romans 10.4 can say, For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That word end there is the Greek word telos, and it has the idea of reaching a terminus point, something that was aimed at. I don't think that passage is saying that the law as an undifferentiated lump is now null and void, but rather it's saying those ceremonial laws reached their goal, their fulfilment in Jesus. And the whole book of Hebrews resounds with the idea of Jesus being the fulfilment of all that the ceremonial law pointed forward to, the ancient feasts of Israel and the special days found their fulfilment in him. So Paul can write in Colossians, therefore do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ. So those laws have their fulfillment in Jesus and they can speak to us typically and instruct us but they aren't effective going forward. They are brought to its, that terminus point Physical circumcision is no longer the boundary marker for being in God's family. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.6, if you are a follower of Christ, it makes no difference whether you are circumcised or not. All that matters is your faith that makes you love others. So what what delineates the people of God in this age is not those cultic ceremonies, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, feasts, and food laws, but it's faith. Food laws are done away with in and by Christ. In Mark chapter 7, we have that portion where it says, Jesus says, "'The food that you put in your mouth "'doesn't make you unclean and unfit to worship God. "'The bad words that come out of your mouth "'are what makes you unclean.'" After Jesus and his disciples had left the crowd and gone into the house, they asked him what these things meant, and he answered, "'Don't you know what I'm talking about by now?' you surely know that food you put in your mouth cannot make you unclean. It doesn't go into your heart, but into your stomach and then out of your body. By saying this, Jesus meant that all foods were fit to eat. So when you get people who today insist on, you know, not eating certain things because they're in the Old Testament, or observing certain days because the Old Testament talks about them, I'd want to say the Bible says that Jesus is the end of the law. That, that Those cultic ceremonial laws have found their fulfillment in Jesus. And when the New Testament says you are not under the law, For me, at least, anyway, I see that as being the ceremonial aspects of the law. You don't have to be circumcised to be in the family. You don't have to keep Sabbath. You don't have to eat particular foods. That is not what delineates the people of God. It's by grace, through faith, in the Messiah, Jesus. N.T. Wright, the scholar, says, The Torah was given for a specific period of time and is set aside, not because it was a bad thing now happily abolished, but because it was a good thing whose purpose has now been accomplished. And I would want to add in Jesus. So there's the ceremonial law. Then there's civil law. Now, civil law are the laws given to Israel at that time and in that culture so society could be well ordered and as peaceful as possible. And it's easy as you're reading the Old Testament to read these laws and, and put them in the same box, I suppose, as the ceremonial aspects of the law, not applicable, not relevant. And of course, the outward dimensions of the civil law often do not apply any longer. For example, we generally don't have to think about how to behave if our bull gores our neighbor's bull or even the neighbour himself. We don't really have to usually think about those things. And so it's easy to say, oh, that was just for Israel, that really is not applicable. I would want to say, however, rather than simply dismiss them as being completely irrelevant, we might do well to be alert and look beyond the ancient external form and see what might be the deeper and more abiding principle. I showed you this a couple of weeks ago, but let me show you how the Apostle Paul did exactly this. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, talks about treating animals with. Uh, well and with compassion and it says don't muzzle an ox while it's threshing the grain easy to read that and think well I don't even have any ox so that's that's irrelevant Paul does this He's saying, look, when the ox feeds, uh, when it's threshing, it feeds on the grain. It's doing the work. It should be able to partake in and enjoy some of the benefits. And so when he's writing to the Corinthians, he talks about the need for financial support for traveling ministries, and this is what he says. I'm reading from the message. I'm not shy in standing up to my critics. We who are on missionary assignments for God have a right to decent accommodation and we have a right to support for us and our families. You don't seem to have raised questions with other apostles and our masters, brothers and Peters in these matters. So why me? Is it just Barnabas and I who have to go it alone and pay our own way? Are soldiers self-employed? Are gardeners forbidden to eat vegetables from their own gardens? Don't milkmaids get to drink their fill from the pail? And I'm not just sounding off because I'm irritated. Sounds a little bit like it, Paul. This is all written in the scriptural law. Moses wrote, don't muzzle an ox to keep it from eating the grain when it's threshing. You want to say, so what's that got to do with traveling ministries, Paul? He says, do you think Moses' primary concern was the care of farm animals? Don't you think that his concern extends to us? Of course. Farmers plough and thresh expecting something when the crop comes in. So if we have planted spiritual seed among you, is it out of line to expect a meal or two from you? Others demand plenty from you in these ways. Don't we, who have never demanded, deserve even more? Here's Paul saying, look, that passage there, of course it had relevance to the ancient culture, but there's a principle in it. And and he goes beyond just the ancient external law to see an abiding principle. And it's an interesting exercise when you're reading the Old Testament and reading through those portions where it talks about civil law to actually think, is there something beyond this? Let Let me just do a little exercise with you. It won't take a minute, but I'll go through Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 contains a long list of civil laws that actually really are undergirded by moral concerns that are abiding principles. I'll read you a few scriptures. Verses 9 and 10 of Leviticus 19. When you harvest your land, don't harvest right up to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings from the harvest. Don't strip your vineyards bare or go back and pick up the fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am God your God. Now, the abiding principle here is about God's concern for the poor and the vulnerable in our midst. We, we may not be able to apply the law of what they called cleaning in our culture, but there might be other ways that we can care for the same category of people in our society. And by the way, as you go through each of these, it'll say at the end, I am God. At the end of each of these principles, that statement isn't just a threat you better do this because I'm bigger than you are. And rules is rules. That's not what's happening. What God is saying there is, this reveals my heart. This is who I am. This is what I care about. So in verse 13, don't hold back the wages of a hired hand overnight. You say, "Don, well, that clearly doesn't apply to us because we pay on a weekly basis. Some people very weekly. The abiding principle has to do with fair and equitable payment and treatment of employees. That's as relevant as tomorrow's newspaper. Verse 14, don't, call, don't curse the deaf, don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Fear your God, I am God. And in verse 32, show respect to the aged, honour the presence of an elder. Fear your God, I am God. God's saying, I care about the disabled and the elderly in your community. Look after them. Verse 15, don't pervert justice. Don't show favoritism to either the poor or the great. Judge on the basis of what is right. Take care to maintain the integrity of the judicial process. It's the abiding principle. In verse 33, when a foreigner lives with you in your land, don't take advantage of him. Treat the foreigner the same as a native. Love him like one of your own. Remember, you were once foreigners in Egypt. I am God, your God. The abiding principles make sure there's equality before law for ethnic minorities. This is about not letting racism take root in our society. In verse 23, when you enter the land and plant fru- uh, any kind of fruit tree, don't eat the fruit for the three years, consider it inedible. By the fourth year, its fruit is holy, an offering of praise to God. Beginning in the fifth year, you can eat its fruit. You'll have richer harvests this way. I am God, your God. This is about ecological sensitivity caring for the land and the earth, being good stewards of God's creation. You can just simply wipe those laws off and say, ah, none of that has any... We don't have anything to do with that. The abiding principles are profoundly relevant. Verse 35, don't cheat when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and weights and measures. I am God, your God. I brought you out of Egypt. The abiding principle here is about honesty and integrity in trade and business. Relevant? My goodness, Yes. Now it's interesting, we call such matters social ethics or perhaps human rights. Leviticus calls them holiness. Be like God, He's, and he says, Be like me, be holy because I am holy. These are things that I care about, and they're abiding principles. And simply to throw the law out as one undifferentiated lump is to miss so much of God's heart. You know, the whole idea of love your neighbor as yourself, that is not some revolutionary new ethic that Jesus brought onto the scene. It was the foundational demand of holiness found right through the Old Testament law. Now, without a doubt, it was sharpened and refined by Jesus. But even Jesus said the whole law hangs on this idea of love God, love your neighbor Matthew 22, verse 36 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like this one, and it is love others as much as you love yourself. All the law of Moses and the books are based on these two commandments. This is the foundation of Old Testament ethics and holiness. Paul says the same in Romans chapter 13. Don't run up debts except for the huge debt of love you owe each other. When you love others, you, compete, you complete what the law has been after all along. The law code, don't sleep with another person's spouse, don't take someone's life, don't take what isn't yours, don't always be wanting what you don't have, and, and, and any other don't that you can think of, finally adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. All of the the civil law is about treating other people well because God cares about other people. So we've got the ceremonial law, which was fulfilled in Christ. We've got the civil law with its abiding principles. And then we've got the moral law. That has to do with the law that's based on God's moral character, and it has to do with righteousness and justice. And these laws are an expression of God's holy, unchanging character. The Ten Commandments are an obvious example of what we call the moral law. When when you study the law... Moses in the law gives what we might call common motive clauses. And by that, he's trying to explain why you should do these things. This is the reason behind these laws. God does not simply want from us external mechanical obedience, obeying rules for rules' sake. He wants an intelligent ethos of willing moral conduct. And in these motive clauses, four things stand out. You should obey the law, number one, because of gratitude for what God has done. In the light of what God has done in redeeming us, or in that case, that people, sheer gratitude should trigger obedience. We love, because he first loved us, might not be uh, an Old Testament text, but it is the heart and echo of Old Testament ethics. Mercy received leads to mercy offered. Exodus 23.9 says, Don't take advantage of a stranger. You know what it's like to be a stranger. You were strangers in Egypt, and God set you free. Out of gratitude, treat strangers well. Secondly, it's an imitation of what God is like. God's actions toward Israel provided not merely a motive for ethical obedience, but a model of it as well. The law was given to enable Israel to become like Yahweh. You be holy like I'm holy. You care about the things that I care about. Number three, it makes you different. I know this is closely related to point two, but God is effectively saying, I want you as an expression of your love for me to be different in the same way that I'm different. I'm a different kind of God and I need you and want you to be a different kind of people. Now, I guess that could sound snobbish, but to take it that way would be to misunderstand God's intentions entirely. They weren't to regard themselves as any better than anybody else, but they had been appointed as a light to the nations. Redeemed, given a charter to be a free people. They become like God and Deuteronomy 4 says, pay attention, I'm teaching you the rules and regulations that God commanded me so that you may live by them in the land you're entering to take up ownership. Keep them, practice them, you'll become wise and and understanding. And when people hear and see what's going on, they'll say, what a great nation, so wise, so understanding, we've never seen anything like it. And fourthly, and this is a really good point for us in our postmodern world, God gives laws for our good. Deuteronomy 4.40 Keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm commanding you today, for your own well-being and that of your descendants after you, so that you may uh, long remain in the land that the Lord your God has given you for all time. Deuteronomy 6.24 says the same. Deuteronomy 5.33 says the same. Deuteronomy 10.13 says the same. I'm giving you these laws for your benefit. The law was given to provide the conditions in which life could be most humane and beneficial. You know, contrary to what we sometimes imagine and are told by our culture, God never intended law to squash, ruin, remove, or limit life, but to enhance it. And when God says, Don't do that, He doesn't do it just because He's bigger than you are. He says, Life won't flourish when you do that. And in our individualistic culture, we, we want to be free, so we just throw off all restraints and we say, I, I'll do what I like. And if I want to jump off a building, you know, I'm free to do it. I'm, I'm going to break the law of gravity by jumping off this building. I'm sorry, you don't break the law of gravity. In the end, the law of gravity breaks you. you when God says, don't, He's not trying to squelch life, he's trying to enhance life. You parents know that. When you say to your child, don't pick up that razor blade, don't, don't pick up that bottle of medicine, we aren't trying to squelch their individuality, we're trying to enhance and, and extend their lives. G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great scholars of the 20th century, said in in the testing of Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent asked a question which was calculated to create a sense of restricted liberty and so cast aspersion on the character of God. Eve's answer admitted that a limitation existed. No, we're not allowed to touch that tree. The essence of evil is seen in the interpretation of that limitation. Whereas limitation in the purpose of God was wholly beneficial and intended to hold man within the only sphere which they could make progress toward their largest and fullest possibility of their being, the enemy suggested it was imposed by a desire on the part of God to keep them from progress and enlargement of capacity. You have to decide whether God's good and cares for you or not. If he's good and he cares for you, then the laws that he puts in place are for your fulfillment, not for your limitation. The world says, nah, throw them all off. We throw them all off to our detriment. The law was given by God for our good. That's why, by the way, and I'm nearly done, Jesus was horrified at what the Pharisees and scribes had done to the law. They turned it from being a blessing into being a burden. The Sabbath that was explicitly given for human need. In fact, Harold Macmillan, the ex-Prime Minister of Britain, once described the Sabbath as the greatest piece of workers' legislation protection in, in history. Brilliant for the workers. God gave it for the workers. He gave it to people so that they could have a place of rest and recalibration and refreshment. Jesus wasn't breaking Sabbath rules when he was healing people on the Sabbath. He was recapturing the original authentic point and thrust of it. That's why he was horrified. The the Pharisees had turned it into a burden instead of a blessing. Jesus didn't reject the law. Don't suppose, he says, that I've come to reject it. I have come to bring full uh, uh, clarity into the inherent values and priorities of the law. And his teaching built on it. And yes, he surpassed it, but he was certainly going in the same direction as it. His whole life was orientated by a deep reflection on the fundamental demands of the law since it was, in fact, a reflection of the heart of God. He brought to life the simplicity and the clarity of the law that had become buried under successive layers of well-meaning regulations that had intended to protect it but, in effect, had buried it. Now I want to say to you, to reject the law as an undifferentiated lump. You know, no, we're under grace We're not under law, is to make a big mistake and to miss much of the heart of God. I think where the scripture does say we're not under law, it has reference to the fact that we're not subject to the Jewish national, cultural, religious requirements. I don't think it means, however, we're lawless as God's new creation people, we expect that the Holy Spirit will empower us to live out the ethics of a new age that are now written on our hearts of flesh. And we're called to live in and by the power of the Spirit, to love God, to love people. And we do that, and lo and behold, we find ourselves keeping the law, the essence of the law. That's why I think Romans 8:4 says so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Musicians, would you please come and join me? Read the whole Bible. Okay? Don't just throw the Old Testament out naively saying, "Oh, you know, that's the law." People had to earn salvation under the law, but we are now under grace. I think that's a misunderstanding of our story. And I think you will miss much of the heart of God. As you read the Old Testament, you'll get a deeper insight into who God is. Be holy, for I am holy. Do these things. Look after the poor. Look after the elderly. Look after the disabled. Look after the vulnerable. Because I'm God, and that's the things that I care about. And as you see that, you begin to understand. You know i 'll tell you this quick story, some i 've told it before, but Karen and I have befriended a young Indian I was going to say boy he 's a man. but we befriended him he 's alone in New Zealand. Um, I, I just got to know him through getting coffee in the mornings. But we got to know him, and um, we befriended him, and he's spent the last few Christmases with us and The reason that happened, and I don't know where that relationship will go. He has to go back to India later this year, and the likelihood is that we probably won't be connected with him again. But the reason that relationship was established was an Old Testament passage that spoke to my heart, which says, Look after the stranger in your midst. Be careful for the stranger. You were once a stranger. You were outside the family of God. I brought you in. Why don't you reach out to somebody who's outside your family and doesn't have family? And that's what that's what motivated the friendship. And and I'd love to be able to tell you that he's been saved and that his family have been saved and you know most of his province have been saved. N- none of that's true. And I don't know whether it ever will be or not. I don't, I don't feel the pressure to have to give him the gospel. I feel the pressure to be friendly with him, to be warm and gracious to him, to show him that. He can come to another country and there'll be people that'll look after him. And, and I think, you know, if my, if my children went to another country, I'd want somebody to do that. It comes from the Old Testament. Love other people as you love yourself. I know lots of you are doing that too. It's, it's written in the law. Read the law. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.